The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect official policies or position of the Church of England Pensions Board, any other organisation, employer or their employees. And now, on with the show. I'm so happy because today I found my friends, they're in my head. Yes, we're looking at lithium on this week's Talking Responsibly. And hello and welcome to another episode of Talking Responsibly, the rock and roller's guide to responsible investment. I am joined by my regular co-host, Adam Matthews, and some say he smells like teen spirit. Adam, are you smelling like teen spirit today? Oh my word, you're going to draw this one out, aren't you? No, I'm not, but we, very good to be with you, Mr. Hickey. That, that will not be the end of the Nirvana references in today's episode, particularly because our uh, book review this week um, is, uh, has a Nirvana theme as well. Um, so how, how are you getting on, Adam? Uh, are you yeah. keeping well? Yeah, very well. Um, very well. Um, obviously, I think we're all watching the events continue to uh, unfold in Ukraine and this week with the suggestions of war crimes and even Boris Johnson suggesting this looks like genocide and obviously again that calls into question the role of finance in building that pressure on Russia so I think as responsible investors how how we continue to look at this and address this and take actions could be really important and obviously the last podcast was very much featured on 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 that but on quite a personal level so uh, yeah there's a lot going on at the moment Certainly what is. About yourself? Yeah, yeah. Well, m- much the same, you know. Dealing with uh, dealing with all of that, the outcomes and stuff. You know, it, it's um, it's a difficult one because obviously the the route that we've taken the last few years and trying to work with Russia and be economically involved in Russia, um, it's it's very quickly proving that that's uh, that was the wrong bet, uh, essentially. And those companies that we've you know potentially supported in trying to integrate the russian uh, um operations we're now having to reverse our position and and encourage them the other way so it's it's a difficult difficult discussion um but you know when you're in when you're an investor you know some decisions have to be made over a very long period some decisions you have to say actually we got that wrong really rapidly and we need to sort it out afterwards so um yeah, it's 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 hard, man. It's hard. Investing. Feels like a real, but it feels like a real inflection point, though, because I think certain. Well, just I mean, there's been decades and decades of that that approach. I mean, Germany is obviously having a fundamental rethink of of its approach in that regard, and and many others. And yeah. so, as we discussed last time, also in terms of the way that we've welcomed certain people in, into the UK and ennobled them, etc. So, but it does, it does call on responsible investors to really think through how, how do we look at countries that break norms? Um, how, how do we sort of interact with that? And whether we need to think more um, reflectively around whether we should have acted sooner when Crimea happened, etc. So I think there's still learning to be done. We're in the midst, obviously, the immediacy still of what's unfolding. Um, but obviously, looking at how we do talk to companies do talk to um, the wider investor community around this is going to be really important yeah and but and it also does underline 
the need of the low carbon transition to happen quicker because absolutely russian oil and gas which we're paying a billion dollars a day or billion euros a day from europe to russia um still um does underline let's get that alternative working yeah yeah that 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 huge tax on non-producing countries to producing countries uh is something that you know when we talk about uh having to open up supply chains here there and everywhere and the amount of capex that we're going to have to spend well that's actually going to come out of this you know billion dollars a day or you know whatever the exact number is that um we're, we're paying elsewhere you know we, we free up uh, multiple trillion dollars in worldwide uh, money that's not being spent on burning oil and gas into things that we can actually build new supply chains of, of things that are uh, going to endure and with that I'm going to bring in today. I see a segue. Yes. Yeah, I see no, a segue coming. I, I love a slick segue like that. <laughs> subtle, subtle. Talking, posted. talking about <laughs> supply chains, uh, I'm going to bring in today's uh, uh, special guest. So today's guest is the chief data officer, which I have to say is one of the most gloriously geeky titles I've ever heard. Chief data officer at Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. Um he leads the advisory for lithium-ion batteries in EV supply chains. Now, he joined Benchmark in 2016 to cover cobalt and cathodes for the energy storage industry and launched the, country, the company's battery-focused cobalt sulfate price estimate. It's at times like this I wish I went back and edited these mistakes out. Casper um, began his career working as an exploration geologist in West Africa, and subsequently moved to the world of finance, where he worked as a commodities broker in London, uh, gaining a deep understanding of commodity markets from an economic standpoint. So, welcome to our special guest today, Casper Rawls. Casper, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Thank you for inviting me on the show. No, it's great. And um, to let our listeners know, I've never met Casper before, and we booked you for the podcast uh, literally a few hours before we're recording. So this is great. I'm getting to know you at the same time as our listeners will get to know you. So I'm super excited to have you on. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's yeah, it was great to take part in the Mining 2030 event earlier, uh, I think that last week. And um, yeah, and uh, it's it's good to kind of continue the discussion and get into a bit more detail. We've got a bit more time here. Well, look, I, I mean, the reason we wanted you on, Casper, and, and as David says, thank you for being incredibly responsive to our well-planned and detailed um, booking system. Was 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 quite simply, I mean, last week we launched the Mining 2030 um, Investor Initiative. We're going to create an agenda for investors, um, one that we hope very much aligns with both banks and insurers that looks at a whole series of systemic challenges to the mining sector. Um, mining is absolutely integral to society. Um, as Mark Goodfani always says, and I've repeated millions of times, it's either grown or it's mined. Um, and therefore, ignoring the mining sector and not interacting with the mining sector is just not a reality. And increasingly, the mining sector is absolutely critical to the low carbon transition. And when we talk about getting off oil and gas, etc., one of the key interventions of batteries and within batteries, there are key um, minerals and metals that are required and really having a sense of that in terms of what the future demand is and where's it going to come from and and the concern really is that we we haven't 
got a sort of a match there in terms of the demand and the supply. And therefore, there's a potential real challenge to the low carbon transition here. Now, I'm not sure if there is one or if there isn't one. It was a question that we posed in the first investor roundtable of mine in 2030, which was to sort of really begin that exploration. And that's where we came across Casper. We also had a colleague from the International Energy Agency and the World Bank. Um, but I was very struck by Casper's presentation and um, wanted to sort of bring him on the podcast just to sort of explore some of these things. But I think we need to start low here, David, if that's all right, and, and sort of build up the knowledge. Yeah, that 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 sounds fine to me, uh, Adam. So, Casper, um, can you can you take us through the the kind of main things that you're looking at then, the main the main challenges you're you're seeing, uh, and I'll maybe jump in at times to to get a bit more colour um, on on certain things. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, in terms of what we're looking at on a raw material basis as a company. We're primarily focused on like the cathode and anode raw materials. So for those who don't know what, what those minerals are, you might have heard the names but or some of the names, but they're primarily uh, lithium, nickel, cobalt, manganese, and synthetic and natural graphite. So we look at those markets closely. So can I, can I jump in again here for the non-technicians part who do, don't know about battery chemistry? I, I know a little, but could you take us through what cathodes and anodes actually are and why they're so important when we talk about things like lithium ion batteries and all of these things and people talk about anode chemistry, why these particular, sorry, cathode chemistry, why these particular parts are critical? Yeah. So we kind of term them critical because they are the parts of the cell that allow it to complete its function. Um, so you have a cathode, which is you know, commonly termed the positive side of the two electrodes, positive and negative side. Um, the cathode materials are the lithium, lithium, nickel, cobalt, manganese. Uh, and then you have what, you know, in the charge cycle, it, it swaps, but essentially the, the, the anode, which is the other electrode, which is generally composed of either natural or synthetic graphite or a mix of the two um, and why we we turn them critical because they allow the batteries to function so you know if you think about a lithium-ion battery the way they're made and, and the way what they're composed of is essentially a can or a packet that you put the, the anode and cathode in um, the cathode is printed on a on a foil uh, aluminium foil and uh, anode on a copper foil and uh, they're wound up or, or layered on top of each other and that goes in so you have other things in a lithium-ion battery like other metals and other materials which are the housing the casing but the the critical minerals allow it to do its job and allow it to function and there are lots of different cathode and anode materials that are used across all batteries including lithium-ion but um the ones that are being commonly used for electric vehicles or energy storage those are the, the minerals we're talking about now. Those are the, going to be the ones that are going to experience CAGR growth rates of somewhere around 25, depending on the markets, let's say somewhere between 15 and 25% uh, growth rates in kind of battery demand for the next 10 years and beyond. Yeah, and just for the, for the listeners, again, CAGR means uh, compound annual growth rate. So it's a, it's a rate of growth. That was um, a very gentle use of non-use of the klaxon there. We did give a fair warning. <laughs> I, know, I know. <laughs> um, there you go. You got away with that one, Casper. Right. Oh, so we've go. got. So the electricity comes in. It goes through the cathode. It, it goes and stays in the in the battery. Um, the the electricity kind of stores up in the kind of lithium ion bit, uh, and then you know you've got the the anode uh, is the other side that provides the rest of that circuit, and you can fill up the battery with electricity uh, and then drain it. Of electricity essentially this is yep. how batteries work 
Okay. Essentially, yeah. Good, good. That physics degree is coming in handy now. Yeah. <laughs> good. Well, I feel I've understood batteries for the first time. There you, you go. There you go. We, we, we're nothing if not educational. So onto the uh, critical minerals then. It's, it's, it's called a lithium-ion battery, but it sounds like to me like the critical bit is actually the cathode and it's it's you know everyone's concentrating on lithium and we may have to look at, at lithium as well but you know there's the uh, the cobalt and the manganese and all these kind of unusual uh, metals um that you know make up this uh, cathode bit now how much by kind of weight and how much by value of the of the kind of cells do they make up yeah, it's a good question, actually. So, yeah, so there's, I guess the first first thing to say is that there's different types of cathodes, mm -hmm. so, and there's different types of lithium-ion batteries. So the two that are most common, actually, I'll talk about three different types. So cool. when we're looking at like our smartphones and our laptops and those kind of consumer electronic devices, um, they have specific requirements and they use a battery type that's called LCO, which is lithium cobalt oxide. Um, that's really only confined to, to technology that we're already using. Um, it's very expensive because it, by weight it contains a lot of cobalt, which is one of the, or, or the most expensive um, lithium-ion battery raw material. Um, so they're used in small batteries. Um, the growth rate for those, those lithium-ion cells are, is, is relatively small compared to the other types I'm about to talk about, just because consumer electronics is quite a mature market. Mm -hmm. So it's gone through its growth. Uh, it's growth spurt. So when we're talking about like the real growth, we're talking about primarily two things. So uh, nickel-based chemistries, uh, the, the, the largest of that group is called NCM, which is nickel, cobalt, manganese. Um, and those are the minerals that are contained in there. And that comes, they come in various different blends. Um, there's, there's NCM 111, which is one part nickel, one part cobalt, one part manganese, which is kind of an old technology that's not really used so much anymore. Um, then you have 523, so five nickel, two cobalt, three manganese, 622, 811. And then theoretically in the future, you'd have like a nine series, which is like nine half half. So as you move to higher nickel concentrations, so like five series, six set series, etc., you get better energy density, which means that um, for the same volume of cell, volume is important in, in EVs because you only have so much space, you could drive a further range. Mm. Um, so you have these different chemistry types within NCM. You also have one called NCA, which is uh, similar. It just uses aluminium instead of manganese. It's primarily used by Tesla. Not many other automakers have adopted that. Um, so, so you have these nickel-based kind of part of the lithium-ion pie. And then you have one, uh, the other main one is called LFP, which stands for lithium-ion phosphate. That's a less energy dense version of a lithium ion battery, but it's cheaper. It doesn't contain nickel and cobalt and manganese, which are, well, particularly the, the nickel and the cobalt are expensive minerals, um, but it's less energy dense, which means that for the same volume of cell, you don't tend to drive as far. Um, you know, and a, a longer range is desirable, mostly speaking, for most consumers of EVs. So they're the two types that we're talking about um, in terms of uh, kind of lithium ion batteries. Mm -hmm. And then going back to your question about cost, obviously it varies. The proportion of cost varies a lot depending on what, what chemistry you're looking at. So, um, you know, if you're looking at LFP, a huge portion of the cost is made up of, of the lithium because the iron phosphate, which is the other part, is, is relatively Very cheap. cheap. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then when you look at NCM, obviously it varies again, um, but at current market rates and when I'm talking about the, like the high nickel version, which is where the market's headed, but currently most EVs at the moment use like 523 and 622. Mm -hmm. uh, but the market is, you know, slowly edging towards 
more and more use of higher nickel chemistries, 8 series, 811. There's actually um, some other kind of variations around that, but simplistically, let's say high nickel. Um, and when we're talking about that, the biggest in inputs in terms of cost at the moment at current market rates, because the nickel price is very high and the lithium price is very high, is going to be the nickel and the lithium. Yeah. Cobalt actually makes up a, a relatively small part of the, of the total cost, even though people talk about that as the expensive part of the battery. Yeah, and, and nickel is very high at the moment, but there's, there's potentially a special situation with nickel surrounding uh, a short squeeze with, a, with what is commonly known as a whale, uh, which is a large uh, uh, market participant um, who I think had been shorting nickel um, and was uh, unable to deliver on right. because that particular person's nickel mine didn't produce the correct grade for the LME contracts that they had been shorting. Um, that's my general understanding. And then there was a whole thing at LME of cancelled contracts. Uh, yes. Uh, London Metals Exchange, which our regular listeners will remember from our recent podcast with uh, Georgie, who was a sustainability officer at LME. Um, so, yeah, London's Metals Exchange. Um, so do, do you think that that nickel, the current nickel price, is a, a kind of a, a weird market thing at the moment? Or given what you've been telling us, is there a... Uh, a possibility of increased nickel pricing and is any of that down to the russia ukraine war yeah i think um what happened on the lme is like a confluence of factors so it's it's too early to say that you know batteries are impacting nickel prices the nickel market's like 2.4 2.5 million tons battery consumption is in the kind of low hundreds of thousands uh at the moment so it's not it's not big enough to influence the market it's very much dominated by stainless steel so mm -hmm. i think definitely what happened in the lme was um yeah a function of yeah as you say shorting of the market like broad, broadly speaking before the russia russian government invasion of ukraine um there was an expectation that, that nickel prices would probably go down a bit because you've got some new supply uh, coming out of indonesia some new hpal operations in particular that chinese owned hpal operations that are designed to supply the battery market and that that the, the feeling was that that would kind of you know ease the market and prices would come off so there was this big short position put on as you say but then obviously the kind of black swan event of an invasion of a, 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 by a country that essentially produces a large portion of class one nickel which is the pure nickel form that gets delivered against the lme the london metal exchange mm -hmm. um and so um that 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 flipped things and and certainly that created some concerns about availability now you know the the nickel that comes out of of russia largely speaking doesn't go to the battery supply chain a lot of it's not in the correct form it's that it's what's called a cup cathode which is um like a, just a square plate of, of nickel metal and um largely that's you know majority of the production is destined for europe so uh, industrial markets in europe there's not that much battery production and, and that cut cathode form is not what you would use for batteries there's no nickel metal in a battery it's nickel chemicals you can get to chemicals from metal and that is a common pathway but not, you wouldn't use that type of you'd use a different shape of the metal called briquettes primarily which are powdered nickel metal that are kind of pressed into a, a the chinese call them a steam bun um so that that's what you'd use so it's more that this was more about just a redistribution of trade flows with 
you know, most people not being able to accept Russian commodities or Russian nickel are not willing to, and therefore, you know, you'd see that nickel flow into regions which would accept it, and therefore the, the nickel they were presently consuming in those regions to go into kind of Europe and North America. Understood. So, Casper, so, I mean, we're, we're long-term institutional investors, and we're obviously, I mean, we've been around for decades, and we're needing to sort of see how we're going to invest both in terms of responding to immediate things that, that are happening, but also sort of long-term trends and managing that 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 sort of time frame. And so when you look at the, the low carbon transition and climate change and the need for batteries in, in that, what are the things we should be worried about from, from your perspective? I mean, definitely in the immediate term, because, you know, the, not only do we have this huge task, we need to do it quickly if we have any hope of, you know, managing temperature change to below, I think the target's now two degrees Celsius. Wow. Um, one and a half, okay, yeah. So there's a very big target, you know, which, and time is of the essence. So the immediate challenge I think for doing this is, you know, the way to put it simply is getting the raw materials to the battery plants in the right time, in the right form. And by that right form, I mean battery grade speciality chemicals. They're not commodities. These are very specialist products that have, specific terms around handling, shelf life, impurity profiles in the parts per billion. So it's not just a like a commodity metal, there's a lot more to it than that. Um, so I think in the near term, kind of the immediate concern you'd say is lithium availability. When we look at lithium. So before you go, where is it working well in that, in that sort of the way you just described that? When you say where, where is it where, where, where is, Are there other instances where that's working really well, the demand the supply and it's really smooth and meeting the sort of factors that you just outlined? Um, I don't think anything's that smooth at the moment. I think maybe a few months ago it would have been more smooth. You could say that kind of nickel availability was okay. Um, a lot of these, you know, lithium is the kind of immediate panic market, but yeah. we look at something like cobalt as well. That market's um, the prices are high there. It's not it's, it's not like there's no concerns. It's worth it's better better than lithium is. Um, but there's still some you know, lack of availability of, of, this, of certain products, which has caused you know, higher prices. So I think the challenge is that fundamentally what's the, the backdrop to all of this is that even though we've seen and it's been a discussion for a long time that EVs are going to be part of the solution to, to getting off of fossil fuels, what you saw in the lithium-ion battery raw material markets from, let's say, uh, the end of Q1 2018 through to probably the end of 2020 was either falling or low prices and what that means is as investors no one invests in these markets when prices are falling or when they're at low levels um, and so you had this period where there's a lack of investment in the upstream and by that i mean mines whilst at the same time you were seeing billions and billions of dollars committed to cell production and ev production by the automakers by the cell manufacturers and by both in terms of joint ventures so you had all this downstream build out but with a period of like three years where there was very little by way of raw material investment. And now the EVs are coming to market. You know, most automakers have at least one uh, electric vehicle option, fully electric vehicle option available. Some have many more. Um, and the raw material investments have only just kind of recommenced in 2021 when prices started to increase. So all of these markets are somewhat strained, should we say. I would say perhaps you could argue that the graphite market isn't, under immense strain at the moment, that's going to come later in the decade. Uh, decade. But it's still uh, experiencing tightness across all, all these different markets. Now, with the, it's really interesting because I, I want to get onto that kind of disconnect between the announcement of 
gigafactories everywhere and the 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 lack of announcement of further upstream uh, uh, upstream discovery Mines. and mining and things like that. Um, but it, it was quite interesting. You start to, uh, touching on cobalt and lithium um, and the shortages there. And it's my understanding, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that, that cobalt has a kind of geopolitical issue in that you don't find it in many places and where you do find it, there are issues with, uh, you know, governments, et cetera, et cetera. Lithium's very different. Lithium's very commonly found, um, but people don't want to have it anywhere because it's really disgusting to mine and purify. Is that is that broadly right? And can, can you take me through the how the challenges are similar and how the challenges are different, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. So to start with cobalt, yeah, you're right. So... The, you know, challenging jurisdiction, 75% uh, of the world's cobalt on an annual basis comes from the DRC, Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, which has, yeah, as you say, that's just a geopolitical risk anyway, regardless of, you know, any supply chain doesn't want to be getting three courses of their supply from one place, because if something happens with the border or whatever it may be, you can no longer receive that material. But, you know, let's say the, the DRC has a reputation of being a kind of challenging place to do business. The industry has been plagued by the cobalt industry has been plagued by kind of artisanal labor and uh, therefore like the inference of child labor associated with that in, in the drc it's a very poor region um and commonly you have um people that are artisanal miners so mining by hand which in itself isn't a problem if you're doing it safely legally obviously no child labor it should become an important source to the to the cobalt market it gives people in you know on the poverty lines uh, Opportunity for a, you know continued income. Just um, but, to just yeah. sort of give a bit more context on artisanal mining because I mean it's it's a huge way in which many of the poorest families, as you say, do derive an income, and often it happens around the margins of formal mine sites. So you have a company operating, and then you'll have um, artisanal miners, often families that will move into an area. They will then look to exploit um, at, through their own sort of mine, as you say, by hand, often extremely dangerous um, and often involving child labour in places like DSC. But there is some attempt to sort of formalise some of that market and recognise that you can have artisanal mining where you have individual miners bringing that and then that goes into it. The concern is that that sort of informal often related with with a lot of sort of yeah really challenging circumstances lots of deaths um, lots of child labor also getting into the same supply chain as well and that concern there and i, I mean it's a huge issue and from the mining companies you often have them onto the mine sites and there can often be a lot of conflict between artisanal miners the security of mine sites you often see lots of death as well in those circumstances so it's a hugely complicated thing but it is a massive livelihood also for many people as well it, it, it's yeah. I've got a, an issue with the with the term actually because it sounds quite whimsical and pleasant, doesn't it? Artisanal mining, like you know, you you would go to an artisanal bread shop and get you know fancy bread that has been you know handcrafted by a hipster baker and stuff like. The word artisanal in itself suggests something in my mind that is nothing like what our listeners would probably deem to be artisanal. Um, what yeah. we're talking about here is, uh, you know, kind of wildcat kind of places where, you know, people are scraping a living from the land. Uh, and it's not the um, 
it's nothing like uh, certain images that the word artisanal would bring to mind. But then yeah. it does make it into the supply chain and it does work its way into the battery demands yeah. of these and the lifestyle of people move into certain types of cars and yet it's on the back of um, coming from places where there is that involvement of child labour. So I think yeah. it's a massive, massive challenge. Yeah, I think I think it's, there's a couple of things that's important. I think, you know, the, the artisanal labour situation and child labour in the DRC has probably been unfairly misrepresented in the media. The reality is that, as you say, key thing is, Actually, these people are doing this because they, you know, what they mine today puts dinner on the table for them and their families yep. that evening, and yep. therefore, like ostracizing them from the energy storage or the energy transition, shall we say, is, uh, is taking away a great exactly. And it's actually a relatively small part of the industry. Like the vast majority of cobalt that comes out of the DRC is industrially mined, so it's done by yep. you know large mining, huge mining companies with excavation equipment it's not done by hand you wouldn't be able to you know, realistically get to that kind of volume um, by hand anyway so you know it's it's unfairly represented and there is a lot of work being done to um to make these uh they could they could be calling them model mines make these model mines that will um allow allow artisanals to work but allow them to do it in a safe way ensure that there's no material that crosses the gate that has come from outside um, and essentially uh create a source of employment with fair pay uh, fair workers rights all of these various things that you know we expect from the world today um and and actually bring that region out of poverty so i think actually um you know as i said it's, it's somewhat been unfairly represented you know people have said to me i hear like you know two-thirds of all the cobalt in the world was mined by a child it's nothing like that it's last year it was around seven thousand tons of uh let's say untraceable artisanal material in the supply chain um, and the total market size last year was about 155 160,000 tons so it's it's a small portion of the total it is market. a small portion but when you look at the numbers of potential sort of children that were notionally involved in some of the sort of quite credible studies in terms of child labor involvement in that is that the i mean any involvement i think is concerned now I think what you're saying in terms of some of the steps that have been put in place are, are really encouraging ways to sort of look at the reality and the importance of that to local economic development and families um, in those areas. So I think, and, and some of the cooperatives that are put in place as well, I think have been really quite good good models there. So I, I think it is important, and but I think in having any element that that has that risk has got to be addressed. And and uh, yeah, you're right absolutely. to you're right to say that as the proportion of the whole market it is small but nonetheless that small portion still flows through and i'm gonna and I'm, yeah. I'm gonna point out something there on the on the seven thousand tons yeah everyone might be thinking well you know seven thousand tons it doesn't take many people to mine seven thousand tons but we're talking finished product here aren't we seven thousand tons of finished seven, product not seven thousand yeah, yeah. tons of you know earth that you have to dig up i don't know what the fraction is from you know the amount of earth you dig up to the amount of cobalt you get you get out but it will be a multi, a bit, probably a big multiple of that seven thousand tons. Yeah. So the, the, so obviously in the earth it's a lower ratio, but the artisanal tar, you can see the mineralization in the grounds. Yeah. So they're targeting that. So you're looking at like something like four or five percent. Yeah. Of the material is is cobalt. So you multiply it out. Like so that. yeah. yeah so it's a lot more. 20, 20 times uh, approximately. That's what you would have to mine to get seven thousand tons. Exactly. And that's of untraceable material. That, that yeah. doesn't mean child yeah, labor. That just means, yeah. So, yeah. but yeah, as you say, any, 
you know, even a thousand tons or a hundred tons is too many uh, to have in your supply chain. But, um, you know, I just, I think there's some, some kind of expectation, you know, people have said to me, oh, like, all oh, smartphones have child labor, but actually there's a lot of companies that do the right thing. And, yep. you know, as I say, again, it, you, know, you, you want to kind of bring these artisanals into the industry in the sense that you can offer them, you know, that, that source of employment and income for the long term. Absolutely. Yep. Okay, so we're going to leave talking about rocks and metals uh, and move on to talking about rock and metal uh, with this week's Book of the Week. And just a quick note that this section was recorded before the early death of Taylor Hawkins. Take it away, Dr. Sullivan. Welcome to Book of the Week with Rory Sullivan. This week's book review is Storyteller by Dave Grohl. In my last review, um, when I reviewed Eddie Jones's leadership book, I broke one promise, which was that I wouldn't do a hatchet job on a book as part of the podcast series. In this episode, I'm going to have to break another promise. When I started doing the podcast, I promised myself that it would not be a request show, that I would not take readers' requests, um, or, oh, here's the book I love, can you review it? That I would actually stick to the books that that I had read and enjoyed. Um, I'm about to break that promise, um, but let me, let me explain why. I received a letter, and now actually I should probably preface this by saying that, that there may be some elements of exaggeration and some slight playing with the truth at the margins in what I'm about to say, but I think it, 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 it conveys an essential truth. So, written on a lined piece of paper torn from a school copy book, written in pencil in the tidiest of joined up handwriting, I received the following message. Dear Dr. Sullivan, that's me by the way, my name is David. I am 41 years old. I am from Doncaster, but now live in Edinburgh with my wife and my dog, Sarah. That's the dog's name, not my wife's name. I listen to the Talking Responsibly podcast, and I think your book reviews are the best part. You're even better than the CBB's bedtime stories on BBC. I'm still reader or listener. I'm still reading from the letter because it went over, went over to the other side of the page. I also love music. I always wanted to be a rock star, but in the words of my mum, her name is Kat, I couldn't sing, I couldn't play, and I looked awful. She suggested I try being a fund manager because she didn't think being a rock star was feasible. Because I can't be a rock star, I'm writing to ask you if you do a book review for me. Do you think you could review Storyteller by Dave Grohl? Dave Grohl is my hero. He was in Nirvana and is in the Foo Fighters. And he seems like the loveliest of men. If you could do this, you would make me so happy. Your greatest fan, David, XXX. Dear listener, that's the end of the letter. Um, so this review is for David. Dave Grohl's book, Storyteller, is absolutely wonderful. It takes all of the great rock star um, biography boxes, you know, some big names, lots of scurrilous anecdotes, grungy living, you know, midlife, look back on the excesses of youth. And it's, excess, it's, it's infused with sort of a warm sense of 
of, I guess, positivity and hope. And I think it, it reinforces the perception of Dave Grohl as, as one of the loveliest men in rock. Um, the, the, the thing about this book, though, is, is this is this isn't just a sort of a rock star memoir. I actually think this is one of the greatest, greatest American books of the 21st century. Um, and, and I think Dave Grohl in, in a single book has, has elevated himself to the pantheon of the great American writers. And I don't say that lightly. Um, there are two sort of aspects to the book that I want to um, to deal with. One is the 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 emotional power he captures. I mean, those of you who who will know who know Dave Grohl's story know that he was in Nirvana. Kurt Cobain died when when Cobain was twenty seven. So Grohl had to live through that and then sort of refine himself and reinvent himself as a musician. And, and there are moments in the book when your heart just stops and you go, oh, my goodness, what has this young man had to endure? So there's a chapter um, where he talks about, um, I think it's called Family Gone or Friends Lost, where he talks about the death of Cobain. Um, and then he talks about the death of his best friend, um, a man called Jimmy. And there was a line in it where I just had to stop, stop and almost gather myself before I could continue reading, where he said, in a way, losing Kurt prepared me for losing Jimmy 14 years later. The other thing about the book um, is the way in which it's written. Um, is it, it's a book written with rhythm. So, 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 so Grohl is obviously a drummer, or that's where he, start, where he started his career as. Um, and it's the sound of drums that drives this. Now, not the drums of a big bash rock star, but actually the, the kind of drumming you find when you listen to jazz, where, where the... the um, the kind of the rhythm section lead the music. This is a book that that basically flows like a piece of music from beginning to end, and it without kind of having bits that are poorly written or anything. It, it is a a beautifully smooth written book where where almost like the music, the music and the rhythm of the book is is the backdrop to the story he's he's telling. I mean, the last book I read that that felt anything like this in terms of of its rhythm was um, Jack Kerouac's On the Road, which captured Kerouac and his friends sort of driving across America. And, and that book captured the rhythm of driving in a way that no other book has. I mean, I think this book is, is every much, um, or is in every sense a, a match for On the Road in terms of its style, in terms of its pace, and in terms of its rhythm. Um, it's, a, it's a tiring achievement, and I can only thank Dave, David for encouraging me to read it. What are the issues around lithium and how, how, where are they similar and where are they different? So um, the issues, are, so yeah, so lithium, you said that um, processing it was a challenge. I mean, I don't know necessarily. So there's two main forms of lithium that it's you know, found naturally that, that, that are um, processed or mined. So uh, the largest co contribution comes from a type of mineral called spodumene, which is a hard rock form of lithium mineralization. Uh, that primarily comes from Australia. There's nothing unusual about that. Your mine, it's like hard rock mining. Uh, the Australians are experts at that. Uh, you just take that, turn it into what's called a spodumene concentrate. It's about 6% lithium. And then generally speaking, that's shipped to China for conversion into, uh, into lithium chemicals, which uh, can be somewhat energy intensive, um, or it's let's say it's more energy intensive in some cases than the, the other route, which I'll talk about in a minute. So that's perhaps where one of the challenges is. And then the other type of mineral or lithium that you find is called, it comes from brine. So these are salt flats in South America, primarily. 
Um, so the Salars, the high altitude Salars in Chile and Argentina, um, and all they're doing there is pumping the brine, for which is underground, pumping it out the ground as a liquid, and they put it into big evaporation ponds, um, and they use solar evaporation to concentrate it. it takes a process, the process takes about two years, generally speaking, depends how much sun there is and how much rain there is, but about two years. And then you're at this kind of um, concentrate, which is uh, yeah, rich enough to then take to a, a plant to be converted into lithium carbonate or lithium hydroxide. Um, the, the, solar, the, the evaporation ponds have some economic concerns around them, sorry, environmental concerns around them in, in terms of like what's happening to the, the moisture that's being evaporated away from quite a region which is lacking in, in precipitation typically, they're you know, deserts, um, which is one of the questions. Um, and then just the, the general, um, you know, wildlife that come into contact with these enriched lithium areas can, you know, is, is dangerous for them. But I don't think there's, you know, I wouldn't say it's the biggest concern in terms of mining, in terms of environmental concerns. They're similar, you know, lithium and cobalt are similar in the sense that actually they're kind of the the way that their growth has happened and their um, their consumption is similar. So uh, when you look at the, if you look at the lithium price spikes and the cobalt price spikes, they've happened at very similar times. So they're very intrinsically linked. And the primary reason for that is that both markets, more than 50% of global consumption annually is from, from batteries. Mm -hmm. And once you get to that critical point of in excess of 50%, then you become driven by that, that industry. And for, for the, both of those minerals, it's, it's lithium. But um, I don't think they necessarily have the same ESG concerns. Uh, they're, they're slightly different. Uh, cobalt, actually, I mean, when you look at the ESG profile of some of the DRC cobalt mines, they use hydropower. So in terms of emissions, it's actually very good in, yeah. in terms of its performance performance um, but you know you have concerns elsewhere obviously um that we've already discussed yeah and i think i, I touched uh, before on on this habit of we've got we we mine somewhere and then we ship something that uh, maybe you're spodumene which is my word of the day what a what a fantastic word uh, you know, you're taking this this uh, concentrated spodumene, which is you know a probably single digit percentage of lithium, and then you're shipping it you know a quarter of the way around the world to China to to extract that single digit percent. So there's all the emissions uh, around moving this stuff around, ninety percent of which ends up in a bin. Yeah, that's the you know that's one of the kind of questions. I mean, I think. Look at these industries, right? They're in the Model T era of the kind of growth curve. If you think about internal combustion engine vehicles, we're still in the very early stages, and therefore, the supply chains are still yet to become more efficient. Um, and you know what will happen over time is that will become better. And you know, yeah, as you say, so spodumene concentrates six percent lithium. Um, you look at something cobalt hydroxide, which is the primary product that comes out of the DRC. That's somewhere between, but. Uh, Kind of around 30% cobalt, you, you can go a bit higher, you can get kind of up to about 40%, but commonly it's more close to 30 uh, or early 30%. So, yeah, there is some waste being shipped um, that will become more efficient with time, I suspect. But um, yeah, it just takes time to kind yeah. of get there and for those changes to happen. And you are and starting to, what, to see, see that in some markets. Sorry. And, and to what extent does China is, is the sort of the, the funnel through which much of this must pass before it then? gets to the global market massively so uh 
that's for cobalt. Um, when we're talking about cobalt chemicals, which is what really matters, you know, if we ignore cobalt metal as a product and we just talk about the chemicals, cobalt metal last year was about 30,000 tons of the total market size, the rest was chemicals. Um, over 80% of the world's cobalt chemicals come from China. So pretty much all of the DRC production bar about 10 to 15,000 tons. Uh, so DRC produces about 100,000 tons a year. Um, goes to China for, for to be converted into, into cobalt products. Um, and for lithium, it's a similar story. So in terms of lithium chemical production, it's not quite as high. I think it's around 70% of the total global capacity. But, you know, certainly the pipeline of, of materials um, for battery chemicals are going through through China. And then, you know, if you look kind of the next step downstream, so you have raw materials produced at the mine, there's some kind of generally some semi-processing that, processing that goes on there. And then you go to... Um, chemical conversion which we've just discussed and then something called precursor which is the kind of step before you get to the cathode uh like cathode precursors that they're, they're called um again i think you know the vast majority of capacities in china over 80 percent of capacities in china so the, i mean i just it's, it's people say china aren't doing enough on climate change and then you look at the strategic thinking that must have gone in decades ago to not only identify the need but then to basically capture the market and then create the the sort of the the hubs in china that basically everything's going to have to pass through and you sort of see some of this stuff coming through from the the us in terms of strategic defense um or, or sort of some of the legislation they're looking to use to 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 get key minerals in into meeting their battery demand and you just sort of think why is it the rest of the world was so slow to recognise this? I mean, it just feels like we've been absolutely asleep um, at, at the wheel in terms of recognising this trajectory. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. So a benchmark kind of, um, uh, I can't remember if it's the first or the second time, Simon Moores, who's the CEO of Benchmark, um, is given testimony to the US Senate and um the co is we've coined the phrase a long time ago we say the global battery arms race and you know china is by far and away leading leading things and you know as you say china recognized this a, a part you know initially part of it was because china had such a bad smog problem in its cities and they wanted to reduce that and one of the ways is electric vehicles so it wasn't necessarily about climate change it was about reducing the Absolutely. smog in yeah. shanghai and beijing but also um perhaps a realization that it that the, the Chinese auto industry was going to struggle to compete and catch up to the likes of, let's say, like legacy global OEMs, um, Toyota, Volkswagen, General Motors, whoever you want to name in terms of engine technology, and therefore they could they could get a head start on them on, on kind of electric vehicles. And now you see some excellent electric vehicles coming out of China. So, you know, as, and, and you know, and again, you know, just a kind of general company mandate, uh, sorry, company country mandate to to invest in this sector has really helped them um, grow it. And to, to what extent, um, and I mean, one of the things that I mean, I found quite interesting when talking with one of the key figures in terms of that interaction with what's mined and then where it goes to in processing, etc., um, was sort of just sort off the cuff that basically within a certain period of time, they're going to have all the minerals that they need um, within their own market and that they're going to be able to re recycle 98% of it or something and that should be sufficient to meet and therefore the sort of the need to actually extract from DRC will be gone in terms of their own internal need um to what extent is that sort of a, a potential reality 
Um, I think that's a long way off if it becomes a reality, because if you think about lithium-ion battery in an EV, which is where the majority of the volume is going now, they're going to spend about 10 years in market. So EVs that are being sold today are not going to come back theoretically for recycling until at least the early 2030s. So you've got a very long window of time before there will be enough uh, or a large volume of EVs coming back or sales from EVs coming back. And, you know, you're talking about uh, the market size today compared to where it will be in, in 10 years time. It's not going to be sufficient to completely supply the market. It's going to become an important part of the market, no doubt. And without secondary supply, we'd have no hope of keeping up, you know, in the mid to late 2020s in terms of demand. And actually, you know, we can, if you want to talk about this, we can, we're actually facing a situation now where you'd have some demand destruction as a result of there not being enough of these raw materials in place at the right time. They, they exist, they're common enough in the ground, just getting them there at the right time. Um, but um, yeah, I think the, um, yeah, sorry, the, uh, the, there's, there's sort of, yeah, it's a, a big problem for the supply chain to face. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, one of the things that came out of that first round table that you presented to was just that sort of disconnect between the commitments that car companies and, and we're sort of engaging with all the European car manufacturers and there's increasing boardroom statements. I think it was you that said it, that the boardrooms are making these announcements on, on electric vehicle production and batteries, et cetera. And actually, have they sourced and got feasibility of the supply chain to meet that demand for their own commitments and and I, I just sort of feel that for me that just flashed up as an immediate thing that look we're engaging with the car companies we wanted to see them set um increase their fleet efficiency in their output etc cetera, etc cetera. and yet you're sort of we, we've not got to the stage of actually can you demonstrate that feasibility throughout your value you can make that commitment you can make that um you can make that sort of bold ambitious statement but actually are you going to really deliver that is there actually that value chain sitting behind it or supply chain that's going to deliver it and to what extent do you feel that there's a big disconnect there yeah i think you know we've seen relatively little activity in terms of the kind of securing raw materials um from legacy oems um you know i think the actually really important announcement that happened like two weeks ago was the Volkswagen China announcement of the deal with Singshan and, and uh, Huayu Cobalt uh, in terms of developing nickel and cobalt uh, mine capacity in Indonesia as well as processing capacity for the chemicals and I think that's important because that's really one of the first kind of key commitments with an existing producer that we've seen from a um, global kind of global OEM and um, but we've actually seen kind of a lack of activity on that front in terms of securing lithium and, and, and you know, the cheapest way and the best way to secure your raw materials is directly the mine, at the mine and create tolling contracts through the supply chain to, um, to, to process those materials and eventually get to sales. But largely speaking, automakers are still relying on their cathode or cell manufacturers to secure those raw materials on their behalf. Um, but as they, you know, as you say, you know, that's okay for this year, but every time they say, we have a more aggressive target for EV sales. We want more of our fleet to be sold as EVs, you know, all these various different statements. Are they then having the conversation with the raw material producer saying, actually, in five years' time, we're not going to need 70,000 tonnes, we're now going to need 90,000 tonnes. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and that's happening across the market. And I think that is a massive potential stumbling block for the transition if we don't get those dialogues, conversations um, understood um need well well understood and 
evidence that there's that feasibility. And I think you're going to have to have a much closer dialogue with the mining sector. This transition is not going to happen without mining. And I think what you've taken us on, to be honest, I think we could go on for hours, <laughs> actually, has been a sort of education in terms of the strategic importance. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's the gong. So that means, despite the fact that we probably could go on for hours, we, we're going to have lithium to stop gong. there. Uh, no, it's made of... Can you make um, lithium gongs? <laughs> Sorry, no, lithium, lithium is extremely... <laughs> lithium's like yeah. buttery soft. Yeah. Um, and very so reactive. Could, and very reactive, yeah. You wouldn't want to yeah, hit yeah. a guy. Do you remember at school when you, you, you kind of put it in water and it bursts? You know, it's that kind exactly. of stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. Always fun. Um, yeah, I, I remember working with lithium and, and potassium when I was doing... Uh, uh, atomic uh, materials physics so not like nuclear like atomic physics where we were doing um pr producing a uh, single atom uh, potassium um sources so that we could trap them in uh, magnetic vices and stuff like that very exciting stuff anyway Gosh. um no, I, I, I wasn't very good at the sciences as you no, know I've guessed. well i'm doing finance now so that probably tells you <laughs> all you need to know about how good i was Anyway, right. Well, thank you very much for, for all that, Casper. Um, that was super interesting. Um, probably as, as many questions as, uh, as answers coming out of that, uh, which is good. Um, that means that we can continue looking at this subject going forward. Um, where can our uh, listeners find you? Are you on LinkedIn, Twitter? Yeah, so um, Twitter mostly, I LinkedIn too, but um, so the company Benchmark Mineral Intelligence, uh, Twitter is at Benchmark Min and myself, it's uh, at CDM Rules, my surname Rules, my initials CDM Rules. Uh, and then LinkedIn, I'm on LinkedIn as well, so you can find me there and um, there's a Benchmark Minerals uh, page on there as well, so you can kind of get hold of us there. Super, right. Well, I'll put links to those uh, in the show notes for anyone looking for those. So thank you for that and thank you very much for your time. Adam, Great to speak to you. Thank you for your, your time as well. And thank you, David. And thank you, Casper, as well. I think you've taken us on a um, metallurgical uh, journey. Yeah, and I think... Uh, Sorry, Casper. I'll just say, no, thank you both for inviting me on the show. It's been a good conversation. So, uh, as you say, probably still still lots more we could unpack, but, um, yeah, maybe next time. Yeah, and uh, I, think, I think the key thing coming out there at the end was anyone investing in um, these new technologies, check your... Uh, supply chains and just make sure that that's engagements that you're having with your companies uh, i think that's one of the key outcomes there uh, it'd be interesting to see what's locked in and what's hopeful anyway on the back of that i'll say thank you again to adam and casper and thank you to you, our listeners please as always uh, share this episode with a friend if you enjoyed it uh, if you didn't enjoy it share it with an enemy uh, otherwise, we will see you again uh, very soon with another episode of Talking Responsibly. Goodbye. <laughs>